Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor George Bonanno will join us to discuss the other side of sadness. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the process of bereavement and grief are extremely complicated, yet the scientific understanding of this process has been dominated by a five-stage model proposed by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. However, this theory may not capture the full breadth and complexity of the process in most individuals. Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Professor George Bonanno. Professor Bonanno is professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University. He is the author of numerous scientific works on the subject, including work featured in the New York Times and Washington Post. His newest release, The Other Side of Sadness, What the New Science of Bereavement Tells Us About Life After Loss, explores this issue for a general audience. Professor Bonanno, thank you very much for joining us today. My, my pleasure. It's nice to speak with you. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure. I think this is really a very fascinating book, The Other Side of Sadness, in which you talk about dealing with grief and loss. But I'm wondering if maybe you can explain a little bit about the history of the science of bereavement. The research, really, of bereavement is relatively new. There were really only a smattering of studies up until about 20 years ago, which is quite curious, really, because bereavement is a nearly ubiquitous phenomenon. Most of us deal with it at some point in our lives, and of course, often more than once as we get older. So really, the early ideas, the, the dominant ideas about bereavement really grew in a time before there was really any research. I'm referring to the Freudian model of grief work and then the Kubler-Ross stage models and like which came after that. And the Kubler-Ross model, I think many people have heard about it, but uh, for those who haven't, what was that one? Well, the, back up a little bit, Freud initially proposed in an, in an early paper in 1917 that grief was work, that grief was a long, drawn-out process, a very painful process, and everybody knows grief is painful. Mm-hmm. But Freud had viewed grief as this kind of uh, elaborate process of working through the relationship with the person and letting go over a, over a period of time. Freud was a very careful thinker, actually, and he didn't make wild claims. He really said these are speculative ideas and left it at that. Really, I don't, didn't really revisit the idea. It was his followers, really, who kind of drove it further. And then, I don't exactly when, remember when this came about, but you know, it was around the 60s. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was working with people who were facing their own death. And I, as far as I know, there still has never been any research on that. But she had decided or concluded that there was a series of stages people go through as they confront the fact that they're going to die, which is, you know, a very difficult thing to do. And that caught on. And from that model, she then extrapolated or extended it to bereavement. And it seemed to be a nice fit. And other people thought it was a nice fit. And it it somehow, it fit also with the Freudian idea that there's a lot we have to go through. And so Kubler-Ross's model seemed to stick, that there are these various stages. And 
anger and denial and ultimately acceptance. Uh, there, there was, I think, five stages that, that she assumed that people went through. And sort of this idea that to go through grief and bereavement required some sort of process or work. Right. And the difficult thing here, now, you know, stages are appealing to people because they give us something to hold on to. It sounds like, well, we, if we're going to go through these stages, at least we know what to expect for this difficult process. The problem is, is that anybody who had any other kinds of experiences, there was assumption that they're doing something wrong. They're not grieving the right way, and they're going to be in trouble later on for not going through these stages. That was the assumption, and that assumption really dominated the way people thought about grief for a long time. Mm. So in a sense, they were trying to fit their emotions or their feelings into this model. Right, and many people, many, many people, in fact, most people, do not go through these stages. In mm. fact, the stages, our work has suggested, and, and literally all the research that I know of has suggested that there's nothing like those stages in the way people grieve. In fact, there's a curious thing about writing this book, which I had just recently written, The Other Side of Sadness, because when I wrote the book, I rarely gave a thought to the Kubler-Ross model, because those of us who were researching bereavement and studying bereavement, we, we, had been, we had seen nothing like that, so we weren't even really thinking about it. But then when I began to think about how to present this literature and our research to the general public, the book publishers and uh, other, other people associated with these books were bringing up the question, well, what about the Kubler-Ross model? And I, I must admit, I was even somewhat surprised that it, the model was still as popular as it was. Mm. It sort of has taken root in popular culture. You see it yeah. brought up quite often. Very much so. And, and I think that would be well and all well and good, except I've gotten so many calls and emails over the years, letters, first calls and letters, now emails from people whenever my work is in the general public of saying things like, thank you so much for saying that I don't have to go through these stages because I didn't go through these stages and everybody thinks there's something wrong with me. Hmm. So then the question is, what actually happens in the process of grief? Well, one of the first things we did, what really got this research off the ground, this really started about 20 years ago, because it was assumed that grief is an extremely drawn-out and difficult experience, most of the research and most of the writing about bereavement had come from mental health professionals, therapists or psychiatric researchers who had primarily seen people who needed help, people who were struggling and really felt they couldn't get over the loss without help. So what we did is what we began to do is to really just broaden our research, myself and my colleagues, we broadened our research to literally anyone who had recently suffered a loss of whatever kind we were studying. So initially we studied people who'd lost a spouse. And we, we set a limit of the early months of the loss. So literally anyone we could tell about our study and get, get to come into our labs and our interview rooms to talk to us, we brought in and asked them about their experience and ran through some tests and then interviews and things. And what we found in that research is there's a tremendous variability in what most people go through. So there's a wide range of reactions. There isn't one type of reaction that everybody goes through. We also found that the most common response was a really relatively brief experience of grief. Usually a couple of weeks, maybe a little longer. We didn't see that people simply got over it after a couple of weeks and, and, and left it behind. But most people really were able to continue functioning, continue doing the things they needed to do in life, and really got through the worst of it really in a couple of weeks, period. Then, of course, we saw some other patterns. We, saw, we did definitely see people, and we still do. And unfortunately, we probably always will see people who 
who have a very, very difficult time getting over their loss. We estimate that pattern to be around 10 or 15 percent of bereaved people, so maybe one or two in every 10, which is quite a few, who really struggle getting over their loss, who, who, who um, struggle and are unable to function very well for many months, if not years, after the loss. Hmm. What do you think separates those two groups? Well, that's a very interesting question. One of the ways we've tried to understand that is we've tried to understand how people cope with loss effectively. So what is it that most people are doing that allows them to move on? That's one of the ways we've begun to look at that. So the way that seems to work is that it makes perfect sense that we would be wired, if you will, to to deal with loss quickly, because up until recently, we were essentially nomadic creatures. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really only recently that we've had the luxury of being completely safe from predators and other uh, needs. So in our evolutionary past, we were on the go and we were relatively vulnerable. So we didn't have the luxury of lying around and, and, you know, uh, experiencing deep withdrawal and pain for, for more than a very short period of time. So it makes sense that we would be wired to to deal with a loss relatively quickly. The way we see that and what we've seen in our research is that we have emotional reactions. We have an emotional repertoire that's very effective in coming to terms with loss. It's centered around the emotion of sadness. So the emotion of sadness, what happens when we feel sad, and we, we only feel sad when we've lost something, when we've very clearly lost something, we turn inward, our heart rate slows down, our, our biological processes slow down, and we turn our attention inward, and we, in a sense, take stock. We focus very accurately on what has happened and what have we lost. And it's very interesting, the research on sadness shows that actually if you make people sad, with Mahler is a great way to make people sad. We often use Mahler, or Mahler has been used in the research, or show people very sad film clips or something like that. When you make people sad, they're more accurate. They're less likely to uh, make mistakes, and they more have a more accurate perception of things, and especially of their own performance. So sadness is kind of a more accurate, reflective look inward. And people take stock of the fact that, okay, this person that's been a big part of my life is gone, and I have to kind of recalibrate. I have to make sense of what my life will be, who I will be without that person. An interesting thing about sadness, though, and about emotions is that emotions are ephemeral. If we experience acute sadness or intense sadness for, say, two weeks, we are not in a state of sadness the entire time. That would be almost intolerable Mm -hmm. because emotions are powerful. So we go in and out of these states. We feel sadness for, you know, a few minutes, maybe 20 minutes. I don't know, you know, the duration. Emotions last anywhere from a few seconds to perhaps at the most a couple hours. We might have an episode where we feel sad and then we come out of it and we are less sad and more able to function and interact with people and then we'll go back in and be sad again. Um, So there's this in and out or oscillatory quality so we're like almost waves of sadness. People have talked about it in various ways. So we go in and out of this state. While we're in the state of sadness, we're able to kind of say, okay, I don't have to completely rework my life, but I do have to accept the fact that this person is gone. I love this person. I can't have this person. I I, I might think about this person all day long, 
that when I come home at night, they're not going to be there. We, we go through a process, a painful process of reconciling that. Interestingly enough, while we're feeling sad, and I, I find this absolutely wonderful how, how perfect nature can be sometimes, while we're feeling sad, we're also looking sad. We're showing other people we're sad. Now, there, there has to be a function to that. Why, from, from an evolutionary perspective, we wouldn't have, our emotions wouldn't have been designed this way if there wasn't some function to it. So why we can ask, does the sadness, why do we look sad when we feel sad? And the, the, the likely answer is because we also tell other people that we are in this state and we want their sympathy and their help. And in fact, there's great evidence for this that when you show, uh, we show, when we see videos or pictures of people being sad, we feel sympathy for them. And there's lots of evidence that other people will be nice to us when we feel sad. So people take care of us. They see that we are kind of withdrawn and not really paying attention, so they do things for us. There's also good evidence that if that goes on for a long period of time, other people are going to get very tired of that, and people do stop caring after a while. So it all happens relatively quickly. We, we go into this state, we, we see what we have to do to recalibrate ourselves, we show other people we need their sympathy and we get it from them. And this is a very effective mechanism that we have that, that really does, it does the work, does the job of dealing with loss relatively quickly and efficiently. Mm. So does it help then to have a community of supporters then to help one through a process of grief? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, interestingly, when we first started studying the emotional aspect of sadness, of, of loss, which we did back in the 90s, we started doing that, we also found that there was lots of, that, that people would show um, lots of positive emotion, laughter and smiling. Hmm. And we, we were quite interested in that. Now, from an emotional perspective, that's not so unusual, but from a bereavement perspective, it was. So we looked at the literature and we found literally no mention of positive emotions in this, this long, voluminous literature on loss. And if it was mentioned, it was always seen as a kind of a denial. If you're, if you're laughing or smiling when a loved one has died recently, there's something wrong there. In fact, what we found when we coded people's facial expressions from videotapes early on after the loss, the, vast, the majority of people we looked at were able to, to laugh and smile as they talked about their, their losses. You know, they weren't rolling in the aisles telling jokes, but they were genuinely laughing and smiling at times in between the bouts of sadness. Now, we, we study this from videotapes, which is wonderful, because, it, you know, it's a little tricky asking people if they're happy. I think we'd, people would look at us a little as, askance if we'd ask them, you know, how are you feeling right now? Any happiness? Because, you know, they just lost a loved one. But what we do is we code this from the facial muscles, the round uh, muscles, the circular muscles around the eyes, the obicularis oculi muscles, contract when we feel genuine positive emotion, when we smile or laugh and we're feeling genuine positive emotion. We get this smile of the eyes. And it's a pretty good marker of, of genuine positive motion. And when we coded that, those expressions, we, that's what we saw. We saw that most people were showing those expressions early on when they talked about their loss. Not constantly, just, you know, once in a while. And it turns out that when people show those expressions, other people feel more comfortable around them. And we've been able to show this in our research as well, that we have videotapes of bereaved people and we ask other people to watch the videotapes. And it turns out that they are more 
more comfortable, less frustrated, and they themselves feel better watching videotapes of bereaved people if the bereaved people had at least one expression of genuine positive emotion. So this also seems part of our inborn repertoire of, of emotional behaviors that helps us deal with loss. We, we feel sadness, we go inward, we show other people that we're sad and we need their affection and their sympathy. We also periodically show them genuine smiles and laughter, which also makes them feel better and more likely to take care of us. Perhaps also signals that we're on the process to recovery as well. Yeah, exactly. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so this repertoire does its job, and it does its job pretty, pretty well. Now, you had asked me earlier, and I don't think I've answered that yet, is what about why is, it, why is there variation in this? Mm-hmm. So we began to study people to find out what was the thing that most people are doing or how is it that, that so many people are able to deal with a loss effectively and quickly. And I, I should emphasize not saying that there's no pain or no suffering because it's pretty hard to experience a loss without some suffering and pain. That's the, that's the fact of life, but we get through it is, I guess, the point. So we've been trying to understand why some people have a more difficult time than others. And there's pretty good evidence now for that, that there, there are certain emotion skills that we have, or for lack of a better word, emotional regulation skills. And some people are just better or have a better repertoire of these things than others, have a better ability to use their emotions uh, effectively to get through a loss. Of course, there are other factors as well. Um, For example, you mentioned having a supportive network of friends and family, and that's very important. So if we lose a loved one without that kind of a network, or if we don't have that kind of a network, or we're in another place where, where, where our friends and family are not around, it's going to be more difficult. There also is the quality of the relationship as well. Sometimes people get kind of stuck in a relationship where they're overly dependent on a person for whatever reason. There's lots of reasons why that can happen. Um, But the person that they've lost has become perhaps bigger part of their life than than they should have or that is healthy for that person. In that case, the the bereavement is a very difficult uh, process to go through. What would you recommend for those types of people that are having uh, problems? Well, one of the interesting things about doing this research is that before we really began to map the individual variation, when it was just kind of assumed that you know everybody goes through the same process, the irony at that time was that the treatments were not very effective. The treatments were kind of a one-size-fits-all treatment, and lots of people were being persuaded to go into treatment when they didn't necessarily need treatment. And the, the treatment was focused on kind of, I think, misconceived ideas about the stages and other things people go through. As over the years, as we've begun to clarify, right, most people are going to deal with this difficult process okay, and some people are not, we've begun to get a better idea of what the people who are struggling are going through, and we've begun to develop treatments more specifically for the smaller group of people who can't seem to get over their losses. And my colleague here at Columbia, Kathy Shear, and her team, another colleague in Holland, Bolin, has uh, they've, they've developed some very effective approaches that seem to be quite promising. So we're beginning to get a sense of what the picture of somebody is who, does not, who is not able to get over the loss, who is really struggling. And along with that, we're beginning to develop treatments. So people, I think, can get effective treatment if a period of time has passed and they're just still feeling like they they can't function, they can't do their job, they can't be close to other people, they can't get the, the person they've lost off their mind, then it's, I think, a good time to start seeking professional help. What would you say is the role of both the clinical psychiatry and drug-based approaches to dealing with type of grief? 
Well, I don't know about the drug-based approaches. I'm sure people are thinking about that. That's not a good approach at this point. One of the reasons what's interesting about it is if we get to the pathological end of things or if we get to the side of the, the variation where people are struggling, we're just only now beginning to understand what that is. I mean, for a long time, grief was assumed to be a kind of a combination of a severe grief was assumed to be a kind of a combination of depression and trauma reaction. But it's become pretty clear that it's something different. So the treatments that are oriented around depression don't appear to be all that effective for grief. So I think the pharmacological interventions are not so effective at this point for bereavement, whereas the psychotherapy seems to be a little bit more useful at this point. Hmm. Why do you think the science of bereavement or grief uh, has not really been investigated until recently? That is a great question. I don't have a fantastic answer for it. I think that part of it has to do with the fact that we in the West, where science has really developed, the mental health science has really developed in the West, Western countries, individualistic countries, the United States and the European countries and Canada, you know, North American countries, there's been a tremendous focus in our countries on emotion, on individual's experience, on the autonomy of the individual. And so we're, we're quite preoccupied in a sense with those emotional reactions. And I think that we have seen grief as a powerful, unavoidable, painful emotional reaction. And perhaps the idea that it's become extreme for everybody is that's gained hold. It really didn't seem to vary much from what we were seeing in the clinics. I I, I don't know if that's a great answer, but it, um, it mystifies me to some extent as well. But we seem to be content to assume that that's what it was, what we were seeing in the clinical situations, in the you know, extreme situations, that's what it was for everybody. And it's very hard to argue with that. I have to admit that I, I get hate mail from people fairly regularly for saying that many people cope well with loss. The examples of people who struggle deeply with loss are so poignant that they seem to overwhelm our, our common sense. It's quite the, somewhat the same thing with trauma reactions as well. Extreme trauma reactions are not that common. Most people who are exposed to you know, horrific things, hurricanes, tornadoes, natural disasters, 9-11, these things, most of the people exposed to these disasters are okay. They struggle a bit, they have some painful reactions, but they're okay. Yet we have consistently over the years overestimated how extreme the PTSD reactions are, the post-traumatic stress disorder reactions. PTSD began to be researched in 1980 when the new diagnosis for PTSD in 1980, and there was a, just a flood of new research on trauma reactions. And it, I think after that point, it kind of spread over to bereavement, and people began to study bereavement in the, in the early 90s. So it really wasn't much before then. Hmm. So it's, it still sounds like this idea of, of grief and bereavement being a lot of work still needs to be uh, worked at to overcome. Yeah, well, I think it's it's still very pervasive in the mm-hmm. culture, yeah. And, and, you know, I've been presenting these ideas for close to 20 years now, and I, at some point I, I think to myself, I should probably just stop saying this because everyone knows it's, it's the case now, but yet I'm continually surprised. And I, and I only recently got some very nasty mail from, from some people <laughs> suggesting that I was making trouble by saying these things. Mm-hmm. So it's still an idea that, yeah, that's out in the culture. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like we're running slightly out of time. I'm, I'm curious if maybe you just have some final words uh, regarding the process of grief and bereavement. 
I, I think that the take-home message is really that we are wired to deal with these painful things. When we have emotional reactions, when we're having them, they don't seem like they'll ever end, which is partly why they're so effective. Um, so when we're feeling grief in the first days after a loss, it feels like it's never going to end. And that's in part why it's, it's so, why we're able to use emotions and what, why they work so well. But we do get past them. We do move on with our lives and relatively quickly. So I think that's an important thing to take into consideration and to remember. The other thing I think I might like to say is that there really is no correct way to grieve. And one of the things we found when we tried to understand how people cope with loss is that we found that people use all kinds of different approaches and sometimes quite surprising things. So, you know, I'm often asked by the media, say a person lost their husband and they took off on a whirlwind tour, traveled across the globe, is that healthy? Or, you know, a person decided to quit their job and do something else, is that healthy? And we always have to consider, are we doing something impulsive? But from what I've seen in the many, many people we've interviewed and the data we've collected, that there really is, there are myriad ways to deal with these kinds of events. And whatever works for somebody is probably going to be effective. If it feels right, it's probably going to be effective. Hmm. Well, it's fascinating. The, the new book is called The Other Side of Sadness, What the New Science of Bereavement Tells Us About Life After Loss. Dr. Bonanno, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on The Bronx. And you were just listening to Professor George Bonanno discussing the other side of sadness. This is the Grox Sign Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, sad or happy? So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're mostly sad or mostly happy, and uh, a little reason why. Dr. Badani, are you ready to play the game? Uh, I think I am. Okay, here we go. Person number one, sad or happy? The real estate mogul, Donald Trump. Donald Trump, happy. I'd say happy. <laughs> number two is the pop star, Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga, I gosh, I'm going to draw a blank on that because I don't know much about Lady Gaga. I'm going to say sad for the. If you ask my reasons why later, I'll, I'll tell you sad for now. Okay. Uh, number three is the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama, happy. Uh, number four, Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods, um, happy. Happy, really? Yeah. Why's that? <laughs> well, I mean, he seems happy most of the time. He seems like a very measured calm person. He's very much in control and he smiles a lot. He's had a bit of a rough spell now. I, I was kind of impressed in a way with the way he's dealt with it. You know, he, he, he's been the, the subject of scorn and jokes and I'm sure his family are kind of annoyed with him as many other people are. <laughs> but he's, you know, he's owned it. He's owned up to it and he's trying to deal with it and that's probably a wise thing to do. And if he's generally been a happy, uh, controlled 
measured person, I see no reason why he won't be in the future. Indeed. All right, and finally, number five is the President of the United States, Barack Obama. I would have to say sad or happy, I'll have to say happy, uh, because he also is uh, an incredibly charismatic and accomplished person, and he has smiles a lot as well. Now, politicians smile a lot, but he seems to, to, to smile in a very genuine way, so I'd, I'd say happy. All right, very good. <laughs> well, Dr. Bonanno, I want to thank you very much for sticking around, playing our game, and of course, talking about your book, The Other Side of Sadness, What the New Science of Bereavement Tells Us About Life After Loss. Thank you very much My for your time. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was our pleasure. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.